From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. As I said, I'm not the Pope. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I do know the conversation needs to be held. I do feel that the church would benefit from uh, restoring its tradition of women deacons. And I certainly think that the reason is that uh, the church could then more fully say that women are icons of Christ. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Phyllis Zagano. Dr. Zagano is an internationally acclaimed Catholic scholar and lecturer on contemporary spirituality and women's issues in the Church. Her award-winning books include Holy Saturday, an argument for the restoration of the female diaconate in the Catholic Church, Women in Catholicism, Gender, Communion, and Authority, and Women Deacons, Essays with Answers. Her writing is widely translated. Her best-selling on Prayer, A Letter to My Godchild is in Indonesian, Spanish, and Italian, as well as English, and she edited the Liturgical Press's Spirituality in History series. She's a member of the Papal Commission for the Study of the Diaconate of Women. She holds a research appointment at Hofstra University in Hempstead, New York. Today we're going to be talking about a recent book of hers called Women, Icons of Christ. Dr. Phyllis Zagano, welcome to Things Not Seen. Well, thank you. It's great to be here, David. Well, I want to dig into the bulk of your argument, but I, I also want to note at the outset that many of my listeners are not Catholic. And so perhaps as a way of getting to some of the mechanics of what you're arguing in your book, Women, Icons of Christ, we could start out with some preliminary questions that will lay the groundwork. In particular, I'm wondering if you would not mind, for those of our Protestant friends who may have an idea of what deacons mean in their own church traditions, how recently uh, the Catholic Church has viewed deacons within its tradition? Well, you know what, uh, David, the uh, tradition of the diaconate uh, belongs to all of us, to all Christians. The church, as it developed around the time of the Reformation, by that time, the diaconate had died out already. The diaconate was uh, one of the two first orders in the Christian churches, one being the episcopacy, the bishops, and the other, the deacons. Priesthood came on a little later. But as the church developed, and this is far beyond and far be- before we have the advent of the uh, Protestant churches or the Anglican Communion, Around the 12th century is when the diaconate came to pretty much an awful halt. The diaconate for women had continued in both the East and the West, in, in the churches we now think of as Orthodox churches, for men and for women. But in the West, around the 12th century, we find that uh, the diaconate for women has effectively died out, and the diaconate for men is almost purely ceremonial. 
you know, we'll we'll have uh, uh, certainly in the liturgy there are still work, jobs for deacons, and there are still some deacons, but fewer and fewer. The the the, the job uh, and the ministry of the diaconate had kind of been absorbed by the priesthood, and so. When we're talking about the uh, restoration of the diaconate, we find that the Protestant churches and the Anglican communion had a little better memory than the Catholic churches. So it wasn't until the time of the Second Vatican Council that the diaconate uh, was restored as a permanent ministry by the fathers of the, the, the Vatican Council. So uh, now they had tried to do it, uh, actually, at the time of the Reformation, they had tried to do it at Trent to have a permanent diaconate, but that didn't work. So uh, it wasn't until the, the many calls for the restoration of the diaconate as a permanent ministry for men, uh, married or not married, in the uh, Roman Catholic Church. And so, this is, and so this is helpful. So you've begun to put some terms into place, and one of these terms is the permanent diaconate. And you just said that that's something that exists for men, married or unmarried. And so when a man in the Catholic Church is ordained to the permanent diaconate, what are the responsibilities that follow from that specifically for the role of the deacon in the Catholic Church? Well, let's back up a little bit, because my good friend uh, Bill Deitwig and many others who study the diaconate as a permanent vocation don't like the term permanent diaconate. Deacons are deacons. And, uh, some deacons are what we call transitional deacons. They are, are men who are on the way to priesthood, and others are called permanent deacons, those who have this as a permanent ministry. But a deacon is a deacon is a deacon. And whether the man is uh, a, only a deacon temporarily, he will be forever a deacon once he's ordained, or he has accepted the uh, permanent office of diaconate, he is charged to the uh, ministry of the word, the liturgy, and charity. Uh, what does that mean? Well, when the deacon is ordained, he is uh, given the book of the Gospels, you know, believe what you read, proclaim what you read. And I think that we think of the diaconate now in terms of the word, the liturgy, and charity. So you have the word. Well, the deacon is the one who, in a major mass, will proclaim the gospel. And you have the liturgy. The deacon is very prevalent in the liturgy. Essentially, the deacon is the go-between the people of God and the celebrant, the priest. The deacon speaks to the, directly to the assembly. The deacon will actually dismiss the assembly. And then you have charity. And the problem, I think, that has arisen, we have 45,000 men ordained as deacons per, as a permanent vocation in the world. In some dioceses, the, their ministry is, has, has shrunk or never grew to the point where they are uh, what one archbishop said, uh, Sunday dress-up guys. They, they appear on the altar. They are dressed. They are dressed in dalmatics, which is the, the garment of the deacon. They do proclaim the gospel. They may preach, but what else do they do? And this is where the tension is now relative to the question of women in the diaconate, because women around the world are doing the work of the diaconate. And the question given by the women religious in 2016, you know, if we're already doing diaconal work, why aren't we ordained as deacons? Specifically, what are the roles of deacons in the Catholic Church? Like when they are ordained, what are their jobs for the congregation? Well, the job of the deacon uh, depends upon what the bishop wants him to do. 
uh, deacons are ordained to the word, the liturgy, and charity. Some deacons are, are given um, uh, two positions. One would be their position in their parish, and the other uh, a ministry to the sick in hospitals, to prisoners. Some of them are teachers. Uh, it depends uh, de- what the bishop wants the deacon to do. And so when a man is ordained to the diaconate, when he becomes a deacon, is the intention always that that man would move on and become a priest, or are there times when the deacon would just stay a deacon? No, well, this is where we have the permanent diaconate. There are 45,000 or so men, mostly married men, who are ordained permanently as deacons in the Catholic Church today in the Roman Catholic Church today in the Latin Church. And so when these stay deacons, this is part of their sacramental ordination. And so maybe, again, since we've got Protestants listening and maybe people who have no faith at all, what is specific about the sacramental nature? What, what do Catholics believe happens to someone when they are ordained in this manner? Well, the sacrament of order uh, in the Catholic tradition has three grades, deacon, priest, and bishop. The bishop is ordained with the oil of anointing on his head. The priest is ordained with oils on his hands. The diaconal ordination has no oils, but it is a sacrament, and it is available only to men. There are discussions, uh, arguments about a so-called ontological change, a change in the person's being. But realistically speaking, Vatican II, which is the, uh, the council in the 60s, the mid-60s, that it is the charism of order. So no matter how you want to think about the ontological change, it is the charism of order, of being a representative of the bishop that makes the deacon the deacon. So part of this, if I'm following what you've said so far, is that there was a diaconate that got started in the early church, and then at some point, that diaconate, you said maybe around the 12th century, began to die out. First of all, who established the diaconate? Was the diaconate established by Jesus Christ when he set up the apostles, or was it established in some other way? Well, actually, the only person in Scripture called deacon is Phoebe. And actually, Paul calls her deacon, not deaconess, despite some of the translations you'll see. Phoebe is the person who brought Paul's letter to the Romans. Later in Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, we see that the the apostles are saying, you know, we can't do it all. We have problems uh, with discussion between the Hebrew-speaking women and the Greek-speaking women. We need someone else to handle uh, basically the, not so much administrative tasks, but the charitable tasks. Some people like say, oh, well, you know, they were only waiting on tables. Well, the word deacon means a lot more than that. And there's some academic writing by a man named John Collins in, in Australia that goes into it quite deeply. But the diaconate began as a permanent ministry. It was an invention, is the word that Pope Francis has used, an invention of the church. And as such, it is a creation of the church. It is uh, something that the church uh, uh, could probably change. 
Now, let me make sure that I'm following. When you say it's an invention of the church, sometimes Protestants will view that as kind of something that is added apart from Scripture. But clearly, deacon is uh, Phoebe is mentioned as a deacon. The Acts of the Apostles talk about needing to have someone who can help with the table work. And so deacons are scriptural. But when you say it's an invention of the church, you mean that it was instituted as an improvisation on the part of those that were in the ministry that needed extra hands in the ministry. Have I understood that correctly? Well, that's it. That's what uh, Pope uh, Francis said in, in Philadelphia in 2015, that the uh, the bishops, the, the apostles, the precursors of the bishops, realized they, they couldn't do it all themselves. Their, their job was to preach and to pray. And so they, and his word, and I listened to it four times, what they invented the apostles invented the diaconate. They said, let's, let's, you know, we need to find people who can, can help us in this ministry. We need trustworthy people. And in the gospel, in the, in the Acts of the Apostles, we find uh, the symbolic number of seven people chosen. And so from that scriptural beginning, it was a ministry, but it was a ministry that was, was it well-defined? Was it written about in the early church after the, the apostolic period? Or is it mainly a mystery of what these, uh, what these deacons did? No, we have a lot of information about the various deacons, women deacons, throughout uh, church history in the early church up to medieval times. Uh, and, and I think that deacons ministered in different ways, just as today they did what their bishops uh, asked them to do. There is no way we could say that every single territory at every single time with every single bishop did the same thing. It, it's impossible to, uh, to ascertain precisely what happened. We can only find out what we know, and we know a lot. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Dr. Phyllis Zagano. We're talking about her recent book, Women, Icons of Christ, which deals with the history of women deacons in the Catholic Church. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and today we're speaking to Dr. Phyllis Zagano. She's an internationally acclaimed Catholic scholar and lecturer on contemporary spirituality and women's issues in the church. We're discussing a recent publication of hers, a book called Women, Icons of Christ. Now, before the break, you said something that I want to dig into a little bit deeper. In the book of Romans, there's a, a person named Phoebe, and she is mentioned as a deacon. And in fact, she is the only person in the New Testament who is given that title. But then you made the side comment that that is sometimes translated not as deacon, but as deaconess. Can you tell us a little bit, first of all, what's going on there when someone is deciding to translate that Greek word for deacon as deaconess? Well, the word misogyny comes to mind. But you know what? I can't get that mad at various Romance languages because 
they uh, tend to feminize the titles given to women. And just because that's the way they are. But if you look at, uh, at the Greek, it is certainly deacon. In the Georgian language, there is no gender, so it's always deacon. And it's just the way language developed that the term deaconess actually came into being. It's, it's a few centuries before we have the term deaconess. And uh, we have a number of tombstones with, uh, with women's names, you know, and they're called deacon, not deaconess. So it's, it's an accretion of language. I can't get angry at anyone unless they're trying to make a theological point about it. Now, I think contemporary listeners might imagine that it's an innocuous thing to change the word deacon to deaconess, but there are, as you mentioned, the possibility of misogyny or politics there. If we imagine back to that earlier time, to the first few centuries of the church, why would there need to be female deacons? What sorts of roles would they play in the life of the church that were needed and specific for that time? I think of the... uh conversation I had with the uh, Bishop of uh, Damascus in Syria, a Maronite bishop. He said, yes, of course there were women deacons. Of course they were ordained because they touched the sacred. They anointed ill women. They brought them the sacrament. They educated women. They educated, they catechized children and women. They assisted the bishop in anointing at baptism. Why? Cultural questions. No man would be alone with a woman he wasn't married uh, to. No man would touch a woman. I think that uh, the fact of uh, the, the cultural need, the absolute cultural need for uh, women ordained as deacons um, was made very clearly to me by that Maronite bishop and again by another Maronite bishop in Brooklyn, New York. So and so you, you mentioned cultural things. So we, we know that there are cultures even today where men touching women, women touching men who, to whom they are not related is forbidden. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, that earlier cultural time, the fact that there would be women who would need to have ministerial rites performed, it would not have been appropriate for a male deacon to have performed those rites for various cultural reasons. And so from a cultural standpoint, it simply makes sense that there would be female deacons. First of all, have I understood that correctly? Yes, yes, of course. And so moving off of that then, you, you mentioned also before the first break that there was some bad blood, I, that's my term, not yours, but there was, there was some dissension amongst the priestly ranks because the deacons of the early church were the ones that maintained the treasury, and that was to the, the disfavor of the priests. They ate last, they got paid last, those sorts of things. And so, if I'm understanding correctly, not only a reduction of the female diaconate, but the diaconate generally occurred after the 12th century, not for theological reasons, but largely for these kind of financial and social reasons. Have I understood that correctly as well? It's mainly in Rome. Mainly in Rome. The deacons of Rome were not at all pleased with the, uh, uh, excuse me, the priests in Rome were not at all pleased with the deacons in Rome. And, and so it spread because that's where the law was being made. Well, yeah, because in the Catholic Church, Rome was sort of the settler of all theological disputes, and Rome kind of set the tone for the rest of the Church. Now, you, you mentioned also that in the Reformation, at the Council of Trent, there was an attempt to bring back the diaconate. What was that conversation like, and why was that conversation unsuccessful? 
Well, I, I'm, I'm not an expert on the Council of Trent. I just know that the need was there. Europe had suffered plague and uh, there, there was a need for diaconal services. It's about this time that you find the rise of religious orders, but you also find the forbidding of the creation of, religious, of new religious orders. So, so there's a tension there. I often think that when you, if you would go to a bishop and say what you wanted to do, that is to minister to the poor, to feed the hungry, particularly the imprisoned, he would hear the vocation of the deacon, of the diaconate in you. But that conversation failed. They were there, certainly there long enough. They could have finished it, but they didn't. And I think part of it had to do with the restriction of uh, clerical power to the priesthood. And that is a, a problem even today with the diaconate in terms of what the deacon, who is a cleric, uh, what the deacon can do. One of the things that you talk about in your book, Women Icons of Christ, now that you're beginning to talk about the kind of the, the kind of orders of clerics, is you talk about an argument that begins to surface in the documents in the wake of Vatican II that lead to different interpretations about what the ordination the the right of ordination in the Catholic Church means. And there is a faction, there is a group that very strongly believes in, and I'm, I want to make sure I get the term right, I believe it's the unicity of ordin ordination, the notion that there is one ordination that stems from deacon to priest to bishop. First of all, tell us a little bit about what the, what, what the argument is for the unicity of ordination from those that argue for it. Yeah, it's the unicity of order. And it's basically, if you can be ordained a deacon, and to be ordained a deacon, you must be qualified to be ordained a priest. Well, this is, this is the same argument that was uh, in what's called the cursus honorum, or the course of honor. By the 12th century, it became legislated that you could not be ordained a deacon unless you were on the way to priesthood. And so it's a hangover from a, it's not really a theological notion, it's, it's a legal notion that if you are ordained a deacon, you must be, to be ordained a deacon, you must be eligible to be ordained a priest. That fails, however, because married men in the Western church, in the Latin church, are not really eligible to be ordained as priests. Why? Well, it's, it's a legal restriction, but there's still no eligibility there. They are not on the road to priesthood. So it's, it's one or the other. Either you can be ordained a deacon as a permanent office, or you can't. And the Second Vatican Council said, yes, you can. And there are 45,000 or so men, mostly married men, ordained to the permanent office of deacon in the Roman Catholic Church. Now, you use this term cursus honorum, and you say it's a legal term. My understanding from your book, Women Icons of Christ, is that it's also in some ways inherited from the Roman military. Is that correct as well? Yeah, the Roman political military strata, I guess. You, you would, uh, to go up the line in order to become the governor, I guess, you know, you would be in the military, then you would be in political life. Maybe you would go through the ranks of the military and get to be highest in the, in the military. But the course of honor, or the cursus honorum, as it was adopted by the church, became one was first tonsured, then one was made, was, it's, it's not an ordination really, 
um, and it usually happened in the sacristy, not at the altar. One was uh, uh, blessed as a lector, then porter, you know, open the doors, close the doors, exorcist, acolyte, and then at the altar, ordained to the major orders, subdeacon, deacon, priest. You had to go through the steps. You never missed one. And uh, only if you were to be ordained a priest were you to be ordained a deacon. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Phyllis Zagano about her recent book, Women, Icons of Christ. Dr. Zagano is an internationally acclaimed Catholic scholar and lecturer on contemporary spirituality and women's issues in the Church. So at several points in your book, Women, Icons of Christ, you make the statement very plainly that you are not arguing for the ordination of women in this book. You are instead confining your remarks and your observations and your historical analysis to the question of the diaconate. First of all, why is it important for you as a Catholic author to be making that kind of distinction here in this book? Well, the ordination of women to the priesthood has been spoken about. And uh, in, in recent times, in 1976, there was an opinion of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith called Inter Insignores that said, no, uh, women can't image Christ, and we don't have the authority to ordain women as priests. And then there was a document, a papal document in 1994 called Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, which pretty much the same thing, except it dropped the so-called iconic argument. Uh, the Pope did not affirm or assert that women could not image the risen Lord. and uh, But he did assert and affirm the uh, argument that the church did not have the authority, feeling that they didn't have the authority from Jesus to ordain women as priests. And so it was a closed issue. So you make this distinction about ordination to the diaconate as a way of, and I want to make sure that I'm following your argument, as a way of recovering the affirmation of women imaging Christ. And you, you start the book by basically saying, it's clear that we're made in the image of Christ, both male and female. And the Bible, the scripture tells us that. But in making this argument, you then, if I'm following, are breaking from those that we talked about a few moments ago that argue for the unicity of orders. And so help me understand then your position to break with the unicity of orders and the notion that ordination always follows that honor road, that cursus honorum. What's your argument with that? Well, there's no such thing as the unicity of order. It's, it's a false discussion and a false argument. If you want to push that, then you'll say that no one can be ordained a priest or a deacon unless he is tonsured and has been, or you know, gone through uh, various stages. Now, after Second Vatican Council, those the major order of subdeacon and the minor orders were the technical term is suppressed, and they were replaced by two ministries: the lectorate and the acolyte, and so. A man who is going to be ordained a deacon must first be, and the term is installed as a lector, and then installed as an acolyte, and then can be ordained as a deacon. The only argument uh, that stands really against uh, the ordination of women 
is the one against the ordination as priests because the church states that it does not have the authority because it's Jesus who created the priesthood. And that, that's a whole nother discussion. It's not really something I, I'm a specialist on. In terms of the diaconate, we know, as we said earlier, this is a creation of the church. And it is part of the sacrament of order, but it is not ordaining someone to be, and the Latin term is in persona Christi Capitus Ecclesiae, in the person of Christ, the head of the church, not, not ordaining somebody to be a priest. It is ordaining someone to ministry. And there are all sorts of laws and uh, the code of canon law, and there are uh, papal encyclicals that make a clear distinction between the diaconate and the priesthood, all of which stem from Lumen Gentium 29, which is a document from uh, the Second Vatican Council. And Lumen Gentium, that's a paragraph, Lumen Gentium paragraph 29, basically says the diaconate is not the priesthood. And so following this line of thought, the diaconate is not the priesthood. As we've said earlier, the diaconate is an improvisation on the part of the priesthood when they needed extra hands to help. No, it wasn't. It's created by the apostles. The priesthood had not come yet. So it's an oh, so it's a, it's an improvisation of the apostles, and so the argument would be because it's an improvisation of the apostles, because it it is an invention of the church, to use a phrase that we used earlier. It can be modified. It is not set in place and doesn't follow under the same restrictions that the priesthood does. If I'm following the the, the logic, yes, and that's that's the logic of Ordinatio Sacerdotalis, the 1994 document by uh, John Paul II which says the church does not have the authority to ordain women as priests. And so I apologize for asking you to speculate. The resistance then to having a reconstitution of the female diaconate, because as you've said, we've got clear historical evidence that there were female deacons at certain points of the church. Is the resistance to the reconstitution of the female diaconate a fear, perhaps, that it's a wedge in the door towards trying to get female priests, or is there some other resistance that you've encountered? Well, I I think that's part of it. The the resistance that is centuries old is the deeply ingrained feeling that women are dirty. And because women are dirty and stupid, they cannot be near the sacred. This is the first papal and the only papal argument against women deacons I have ever seen. In the fifth century, Pope Gelasius uh, wrote uh, that it was disgraceful that women were doing what men, women deacons were doing. Basically, women deacons were doing what men deacons did. That is, they were ministering at the altar and touching the sacred or near the sacred. And we have centuries of bishops, uh, councils, uh, canonists uh, saying dreadful things about women that uh, just just curl your toenails. I mean, terrible stuff. And so earlier, you said that there was the possibility of misogyny. You weren't just simply speaking off the cuff. What you're telling us now is that there's clear evidence from documents from earlier days of the church where this kind of argument that women are less than, that women are somehow dirty or unfavored by God, that that's in writing in certain places. Have I understood that correctly? 
Absolutely. You know, when I was reviewing the uh, galley proofs for this new book of mine, Women Icons of Christ, and I got to the third chapter about altar service, I was getting very angry because I was reading documents from the, um, you know, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, ninth century saying terrible things about women. But the interesting thing that I have at the beginning of the, this chapter is uh, a comment by a 14th century canonist who says, hardly anybody knows, I'll, I'll paraphrase, what ministerial service women fulfilled, but many say that they were allowed to approach the holy altar, like the male deacons. But they've been prevented by later fathers from ascending to this and doing the other tasks of the diaconate because of the involuntary flow of their menses. You know, give me a break. And uh, it's a, um, a superstition that has been inherited in certain cultural traditions, even to this day. You know, the, the rules about women deacons in the canons follow this superstition. The earliest we know, women had to be 60 in order to be ordained as deacons. And is that because they had gone through menopause? Am I following that? Well, absolutely. And But also, to be clear, that they had freed themselves of the responsibilities to their children. As you go through the canons, you find the age dropping to be um, 40, and, uh, and that becomes very prevalent in the Eastern churches who never... The, the orthodoxy never had this hang-up about menstruation for whatever reason, you know. And there's a, there's a Western pope who said, come on, it's normal. It's not a big deal. But you do have this uh, fear. I can't quite quite uh, put my finger on it. You, you have it today in the United States where some bishops get hysterical at the thought of a female altar server, you know, of any age. And it's not something I get, but it is there. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Dr. Phyllis Zagano. She's an internationally acclaimed Catholic scholar and lecturer on contemporary spirituality and women's issues in the Church. We're discussing her recent book, Women, Icons of Christ, where she takes us through the history of the female diaconate in the Church and how it might be theologically recovered. We'll be back in a moment. Hey folks, this is David. Thank you for listening, and thank you for supporting the work that I do. As you might be aware, in addition to this show, I help produce a number of other programs about culture and faith. One of those is the Freedom Road podcast. It's hosted by Lisa Sharon Harper. She's a front-lines, on-the-ground activist and advocate for issues of justice and peace. Each month, she gathers a group of leaders together to talk about progressive issues from a faith perspective. I record and produce the show, and every month I come away from the conversations deeply moved and having learned a ton about our world and the struggles for justice. I'd love for you to listen. You can find the Freedom Road podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify, as well as at their website, freedomroad.us. That's freedomroad.us. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. Today, we're speaking with Dr. Phyllis Zagano. She's an internationally acclaimed Catholic scholar and lecturer on contemporary spirituality and women's issues in the Church. We're talking about her recent book released in February of 2020, Women, Icons of Christ. So, what is lost or what is the detriment to the Catholic Church of not having 
women ordained as deacons at this time. What is the church losing? Well, I think the church is losing the ability to demonstrate to the world what it says. That is, we are all made in the image and likeness of God. And, and when you think of it, there are many, many uh, societies, many, many cultures that treat women tr- dreadfully. The women don't have the ability or the permission to drive. They, they can't go out of the house alone. They need their, the, the, head, the senior male's permission to do just about anything. I remember years ago teaching a, uh, at Boston University a student from the, the Middle East who did not want to go home because her father would pick a husband for her. If the church could ceremonially, through the liturgy, demonstrate that women are icons of Christ, put a dalmatic on, ordain a woman, put a dalmatic, the diaconal robe on her, have her standing next to the Pope proclaiming the gospel at St. Peter's, then I think the world can listen to what the church teaches anyway. We are all made in the image and likeness of God. Now, I think probably Catholics who are listening to this would imagine that you are some part of a fringe conversation about this, but I want to make sure that it's clear to my listeners that you are a member of the Papal Commission for the Study of the Diaconate of Women. Maybe let's take a moment and talk about what that commission's role is and what you are being asked to do as a member of that commission. Well, I am a member of the commission. Twelve people were appointed, six men and six women. I'm told it's the first half-male, half-female commission in the history of the Roman Catholic Church. I'm the only person from outside Europe. And we were called together and met in November of 2016 for the first time in the offices of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith, the old holy office uh, right inside the Vatican. And we were asked to study the history of women deacons in the church and to prepare a document for the personal use of Pope Francis. And so is this office something that is constituted? Is this role in the Papal Commission for the Study of the Diaconate of Women, is it something that you feel is moving towards a decisive moment or a decisive action on the part of Pope Francis? Or is this merely gathering information? And is it merely for the purposes of discussion? Like, what is your sense of of what is to be done with the information that you're helping to gather here? Well, I know that a document was given to the Holy Father He gave a portion of the document to the group of women religious who asked for the original, uh, originally asked for the uh, commission, the International Union of Superiors General, gave them that document in May of uh, 2019. I think to say that it's only window dressing, that it's only the Pope trying to placate women I think that's that's accusing him of being a phony and a disingenuous individual. I I lived I have lived in uh, Casa Santa Marta for something like four months from time to time, and uh, my experience of the Holy Father is that he is no phony. Um, he is genuinely asking for the Church to, as a whole, to discern the movement of the Spirit. The church, if this is of God, the church will not be denied. But I am not the Pope. I am not the Holy Spirit. 
and I have no idea what's going to happen. Well, so how did you come to be involved in this line of study of the female diaconate? Was this something that began when you were asked to become part of the Papal Commission for the Study of the Diaconate of Women, or had you been doing this research before? No, I've I've been doing this for about 40 years. It's work that uh, uh, I published a book called Holy Saturday, an argument for the restoration of the female diaconate. I was challenged by my boss at the time, John Cardinal O'Connor to write the book. Cardinal O'Connor helped me outline the book. It's available in English and Spanish. But I continued the work because I believe that it's something, it's a service to the church. I mean, I, I, I am uh, the, the expert on the topic. And the more I, I read and studied it, the more I became convinced that it was, my work would be something necessary for the continuance of a healthy church. And I really appreciate the charity with which you are answering my questions, because I I am certainly not trying to ask anything that would be considered a gotcha question, but I also recognize that we're we're starting to range into that territory. And so I'm gonna I'm gonna make a statement and I'm gonna ask for your opinion on it. Because I have read your book, Women Icons of Christ. I have also read some of your critics. And having read your book and having read your critics, it appeared to me that your critics had not read your book because it seemed as if they were arguing against some things that you had not said. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm wondering, first of all, because my my experience of this has been cursory, is that true of most of your critics, that they tend to caricature what you are saying in your arguments? Or have you, well, let me start there and say, has that been your experience? Yes, particularly in Germany. But it's not my original quote, but their ability to Google doesn't equal my PhD. I think that they either have not read or, to be charitable, don't understand the discussions. Holy Saturday, for example, has has a very confusing chapter about the distinction between sign and symbol. And uh, that can be uh, caricatured to make me what I'm not. Yeah, they're out there and and they they can be painful. but, But my problem with those kinds of critics is they are misleading. And they are not creating an honest discussion, because I can assure you that the Holy Father wants this discussed in the church. It was clearly discussed at the Synod uh, for the Pan-Amazon in October of 2019. Nine of the 12 language groups asked for women deacons. And uh, I think that the continual discussion is what is important now. Well, now let me ask the kind of opposite side of that coin. Having talked about critics that misread or perhaps do not understand what they have read, have you encountered criticisms that have given you pause or that have changed the way that you have thought about these issues? Well, the critics that that confuse me and and actually change the way I present what I write are the ones who argue that if you can be ordained a deacon, then you can be ordained a priest, Uh, because that's the flip side of the criticism. There are pro-women priest people who say, well, yeah, this is, this is how we start. This is, this is what, you know, the diaconate is a separate ministry. In the early church, the deacon worked for the bishop and the priest worked for the bishop. They were totally separate and distinct ministries. We, we lose that in the vision of history because the priesthood arrogated, the priesthood ate up, 
all the jobs of the deacon for himself and basically reduce the uh, the diaconate to a uh, um, you know a symbolic role. So yeah, that that I, I need to make it clearer and clearer on both sides of the street that the diaconate is not a stepping stone. The diaconate for women is not a stepping stone on the way to priesthood. And I, and I do feel that this is the only political objection. It's not helpful for the women priest crowd to argue it. And it's it's just wrong for the anti-women deacon crowd to argue for it. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Phyllis Zagano. She is an internationally recognized Catholic scholar and lecturer on contemporary spirituality and women's issues in the church, and we're talking about her recent book, Women, Icons of Christ. You mentioned a moment ago that there was a particular way to politically position the matter of the diaconate of women. And so let me take a step back from that and ask you, we're at a point in time where, particularly in the American Catholic Church, the politics are highly polarized. And what are we as—I'm a layperson. I have no particular authority within the church, but my heart breaks seeing the political divisions and oftentimes the scandalous the scandalous phrasing of arguments or even insults against those who are in opposition, sometimes even against the Holy Father. Is this just the state of things? Has it, has it always been this bad in the Catholic Church, or are we seeing a particular time right now where all of this kind of political fracture is on an uptick? Well, you know, I, I think we see it because we see it. In the 14th century, we did, we did not have the Internet or radio or television, but we had uh, two or three popes. We had Catherine of Siena. We had and a plague. So there were things uh, going on in history. What we're seeing now is uh, more clearly in living color, the factions. And I think there have always been factions in the church. I mean, if the church is both human and divine, the fact that it is divine has overcome its humanity. We need to, to recognize that you know, we're all people, people. We're, we're political uh, animals, and people will have different uh, different opinions. I was told, you know, David, many years ago by the highest ranking woman in the Vatican, in terms of women deacons, they, they can't say no. They just don't want to say yes. I'd love to explore that a little bit. So they can't say no. And I, if I'm following, they can't say no, because we've got historical evidence that they existed, because there is this distinction between the role of a, uh, the ordination of a priest and the role of the ordination of a deacon. But they don't want to say yes. So what is the hesitancy? What what are they afraid that they would lose if they did say yes? Because in conversation with you and reading your book, I see honestly a lot of upside. And certainly with the kind of shortage of of hands to the plow of ministry, it would be wonderful in the American church to see more people involved in ministry, more people involved in the care of the poor than less. So what is what is holding them back from saying yes? I think we talked about misogyny. We did. <laughs> <laughs> but but is it is it just that simple or or is there more than just and and help me understand is it is it a theological misogyny is it just a just a sort of rank bigotry like when you say misogyny kind of where are you seeing the feet fall with that Well it's it's a question of power I think that there is an inability to share power with women 
And that's silly because the deacon doesn't really have any power at all. I do feel that it, it redounds, it reverts to this kind of attitude that uh, you don't want to get involved with them. Well, who are them? Well, them are females. And the people who don't want to get involved with them are men now who perhaps entered seminary at the age of 14 and have an uh, incomplete psychosexual development and are unable to work with women. I have met many of them, and uh, uh, but I've also met many, many men who have uh, overcome perhaps that condition of their lives and are behaving like grown-ups. Uh, but I'll tell you, it's, it's not just in the church. The problem of dealing uh, professionally and humanly with women uh, cuts across all uh, strata of occupation. And that, to me, is part of the reason the church needs to ordain women, because, as I said earlier, it needs to point out that women are equally human, that women are equally intelligent. Uh, I have a, a, a quote in the book that what is lighter than air, and it's a woman, because basically saying women are airheads, <laughs> you can't, uh, can't do anything. And, it, and it's also a um, challenging, David, the status quo. And I think whenever you do that, you are um, trying to change, well, to re restore uh, a tradition that was lost 800 years ago. Um, but you're also trying to create uh, positions that kind of don't exist now because we don't have women deacons. We have women religious who do diaconal work. We have married and single uh, secular women who do diaconal work, but we have no women preaching on Sunday because it's illegal. Only a, a cleric can preach. We have no women who can sign the single judgment in an annulment because only a cleric can sign the single judgment in an, in an annulment. And just, you know, just on that point, a poor par a poor diocese that can only afford one canon lawyer is going to have a male. Well, then what happens to the 60% of people asking for annulments? They happen to be female. They have to go talk to a male. And I've heard many, many stories of women say they just can't do it. They don't want to talk to a male about their annulment. And so what's fascinating to me is that we, we said that part of the reason for female deacons in the, in the ancient church was because there were certain limitations on what a male could do for a female or interactions between males and females. And what I'm hearing you saying now is that we're seeing contemporary parallels as well in terms of women who, who feel uncomfortable going and talking about issues in their marriage with a male priest for various reasons or with a male cleric for various reasons. Absolutely. You know, the Holy Father has more than once in public mentioned that, I think he said 1983, a Syrian, a professor of Syrian theology, a historian of Syria, told him that when a woman wanted to complain that her husband was beating her, complain to the bishop, she would go to the woman deacon. The woman deacon would examine the bruises. The woman deacon would then go to the bishop and give testimony. That says so much. Here we have a woman in Syria in the 5th century, in the 6th century, 
whose testimony is affirmed by the bishop, is taken by the bishop. And it's a, you know, early century, uh, early church annulment that can't happen today. A woman cannot sign a single judgment, cannot sign the judgment rendering a judgment of of nullity in an annulment. Well, as our conversation draws to a close, you mentioned earlier you've been doing this for about 40 years, and I imagine that that has at times been thankless work, and certainly it has been work that has that has borne a great deal of fruit in terms of information, but not a great deal of fruit in terms of the movement of the church. And so I wonder, what is it that keeps you hopeful? What is it that keeps you going? What is it that keeps you excited about this work? Well, I think, you know, certainly being appointed to the Papal Commission got me a little excited. It was determined by the commissioners that I was the expert, so I volunteered to be everybody's teaching assistant. I've had the opportunity to work with fascinating and and brilliant individuals, some of which had never even thought about the topic before. And I I think what keeps uh, keeps me going is the opportunity to, as I said earlier, just keep the conversation going. As I said, I'm not the Pope. I'm not the Holy Spirit. I do know the conversation needs to be held. I do feel that the church would benefit from uh, restoring its tradition of women deacons. And I certainly think that the reason is that uh, the church could then more fully say that women are icons of Christ. Well, Dr. Phyllis Zagano, I am so grateful for your work. I learned so much from your book, Women Icons of Christ. And I Every time that I get a chance to talk to you, regardless of whether we're meeting at a conference or whether you're a guest on one of my shows, every time I come away having learned so much, thank you for all of your dedication to this topic, but also thank you especially for taking the time to speak to us today. I'm happy to do it, David, anytime. We've been speaking today with Dr. Phyllis Zagano. She's an internationally acclaimed Catholic scholar and lecturer on contemporary spirituality and women's issues in the in the church. She's a member of the Papal Commission for the Study of the Diaconate of Women. And today we've been talking about her recent book, Women, Icons of Christ. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.